Most people know melatonin as a sleep hormone, but here's what they don't know. Melatonin is the most potent protector of your mitochondria in existence. It's the most powerful antioxidant, mitochondrial antioxidant known to man. And it's designed to get into your mitochondria each night while you sleep and protect them from damage and rebuild intracellular, intramitochondrial stores of the internal antioxidant defense system. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Has burnout become a mainstay in your life so much that you have become accustomed to it? Maybe not all the time, but you absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, know what it feels like to be energy depleted, wondering how you're going to get from one task to the other. I spent years in burnout without a real solution. And earlier last week, I released an episode on adrenal fatigue and the myth that it plays on exhaustion and burnout in the body. And I am so excited to bring on a dear friend, actually a neighbor here in San Diego, Ari Witten. Ari and I have had many, many, many discussions on the true cause of burnout on a cellular level inside of the body. And finally, we are thrilled to bring this conversation to you today. Now, before I bring on Ari, I want to take a moment and celebrate your wins. One particular healing rock star is Brandy, and I'm excited to shout out her win that she shared on Instagram just a couple weeks ago. Here's what Brandy had to say. I have been taking care of my grandkids for the last seven years with little focus on myself. Earlier this year, I really began to slow down and I knew that I needed to make changes, but I just didn't know where to start. I heard you on another podcast and started listening to your episodes. I've learned so much. And the big thing that I've done is changed my diet. Wow, I've experienced such an improvement. Most importantly, I have found enough energy to watch my grandkids without taking micro naps each day while they're at school. I can't thank you enough. Please keep up the nutrition episodes. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Brandy, and thank you for sharing your big win about your healing journey. I know what it feels like, like so many of us, when you're energy depleted and you feel like you can't show up for the people that matter for you, especially your grandkids. I am continuing to hold space, and I promise that we will have more episodes connected and around nutrition. It's such a big conversation. We try to weave it into a lot of our conversations here on the episodes, but we will definitely do more dedicated episodes. Now, for listening in, I would love to gift you a signed copy of my book, The Essential Oils Hormone Solution. Now, part three of the book has really supported me on my journey for more sustainable energy. It has recipes, it's got the full nutrition plan, it's got everything that you want. So we will send that book on over to you. Just reach out to me on Facebook or Instagram where you found me at Dr. Marisa. Now, if you are listening, First, welcome to the show. This podcast is all about empowerment, and if it has helped you in any way over the last year and a half or so, I would love to shout you out as well. You can reach out to me via Instagram, Facebook, or by simply reviewing this podcast on iTunes. Let's be honest, that is where it's at, or whatever podcast platform you love to plug into. That way, I can continue to support more women who are ready to become the CEO of their health along with address your needs. Now let's dive into this incredible conversation with 
Ari Witten. We are going to be jumping into the secrets to building a high energy body. But first, I want to sing his praises. Ari Witten is a best-selling author, a nutrition and lifestyle expert, and the founder of The Energy Blueprint. He has been studying and teaching health science for over 20 years. He has a bachelor's in science and kinesiology and recently completed coursework for his PhD in clinical psychology. For the last five years, he's teamed up with world-renowned scientists and physicians to develop The Energy Blueprint system, which is powerful, evidence-based, and a system for overcoming fatigue and increasing energy levels. You can learn more about his work at theenergyblueprint.com. He also also has an Energy Blueprint podcast. Well, let's jump on in and welcome Ari Wynn. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Ari Witten. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Marisa. It has been a long time coming, and I want to say it's your fault. I take responsibility for it. It's the patriarchy. (laughs) When in doubt, blame men. (laughs) That's the new motto here on this show. I am, oh my God, I'm laughing so much. I'm turning red. Okay. We are talking not about the patriarchy today. We're talking about energy because that is what you're known for. And my audience loves you. And so it is, I'm so happy that you're here today. So we're going to be talking about the secrets to building a high energy body. And I think that is what everybody wants. I used to always say this, had this little saying that I was like, I always could use a little bit more energy. And I think that comes from my mom's like, yes, just a little bit more. And I think we're going to be talking about getting a lot more energy, but even maybe ways in which we can even get a little bit more if we're needing it. But before we get into all of the awesome research and information that you have around this, I want to hear a little bit about your story. You know, what, what was your trajectory into wanting to study mitochondrial function and to wanting to understand chronic fatigue and how to actually give people the tool set to heal their body naturally? Yeah, well, I'll give you the super short version. I've been studying health for over 20 years now, since I was a kid, basically. Uh, and it started with typical teenage boy stuff. You know, I was a 14 year old kid. My older brother was a personal trainer and a bodybuilder and was being mentored by a professional bodybuilder. And so I got into that whole world. My world for many years was fitness, biceps, abs, body composition, muscle gain, fat loss, strength, performance. And I was very, very interested in all that stuff. So from the time I was 14 or 15 years old, I was already reading like college level textbooks in exercise physiology and biomechanics and and nutrition and things like that. And for the most part, it's really stayed an obsession of mine since I was 14. I'm I'm 35 now. (laughs) Yeah. I saw you recently. (laughs) So over 20 years now, the only difference is In my early 20s, so I I did a bachelor's degree in kinesiology. I was a personal trainer for many years. And then in my mid-20s, I got mononucleosis from Epstein-Barr virus. And I was severely chronically fatigued for almost a year after that. And that kind of rocked my world. And it really shifted things for me from this, from basically taking this thing, energy, for granted, my whole life, being an athlete, being very healthy, being high energy, and being just focused on fitness and and athletic performance. Now, all of a sudden, it was like all that was taken away from me. And not only that, but, you know, kind of every other aspect of my life went down the crapper. And, you know, from relationships, uh, friendships, family, school, job, everything really suffered 
from that. And that's kind of what put energy on the map in my consciousness. And that, that was the, the initial spark that made me kind of obsessed with the science of energy and made me, gave me the empathy to realize what people are dealing with when they have chronic fatigue. And chronic fatigue is a spectrum, right? It doesn't necessarily mean you have full-blown, severe, debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome. It can also be like a mild state of jet lag or like, like you said, which is pretty common. Like, I wish I had just a little bit more energy, right? 70% of the population wants a little bit more energy and feels like a little bit more 95% of the population. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was, like I said, the spark that made me obsessed with the science of energy. And then I started to dig into the science around this subject. And I started to look into the science around adrenal fatigue. And, and we can talk about that, but that is pretty mind blowing. And when I got into that and realized that the whole adrenal fatigue model was, was pretty flawed, and then I started to look at what conventional medicine has to offer people with fatigue and realize they don't have a whole lot to offer either. I kind of saw this opportunity and where this, this opportunity and this epidemic of fatigue was so prevalent and yet there wasn't really good solutions around it. And the science of human energy wasn't very well built out. And then here I was kind of uniquely obsessed with the science of energy. And so those two things kind of coalesced into me spending many, many years obsessed with building out a scientific framework for our understanding of fatigue and, and human energy enhancement. You know what's so interesting to me, and thank you so much for your story, I don't think I knew you had mono. And I can imagine it puts you on your butt when that happened. And definitely what a, what a stark parallel to go from, you know, having all the energy, young 20 year old, having all the energy in the world to just getting knocked on your butt like that. Just having that experience. I bet that felt very bewildering and isolating and very confusing during that time. It was. And it also, to some extent, it was like an identity crisis for me because I was an athlete and a very fit, you know, muscular guy. And one of the things that happened with mono during the, the acute phase in the first six weeks was my throat became so swollen and painful that I literally couldn't eat food. I, I was like subsisting on broth for several weeks. And during that span, I lost probably 35 pounds, almost entirely muscle. Here I was this like skinny kind of emaciated guy instead of like a fit athletic kind of muscular guy. And, you know, for me, it kind of created an identity crisis because so much of my self-esteem was built around being that kind of athlete, the fit guy. And so that, that was another aspect to it. But ultimately, some good learnings came out of that. Yeah, I mean, when you, when you lose something like that and you, you, you're identified with kind of superficial aspects of who you are, ultimately, it's good learnings. But at the time, it was definitely brutal. I can imagine. I'm like, and I'm so grateful in a way that there was a silver lining to all that because you've done such great work for so many people. And what's really also interesting is that a virus can do so much damage to the body so quickly, stripping away your energy. And there's a lot of other things that absolutely can do that. What's also really interesting is that you think about how the body works from respiratory, breathing, your lungs, your heart, food, all of it. And the, all the reasons why all of that exists inside of the body is to cultivate energy. And yet we don't spend a lot of time on figuring out how to optimize it. So talk to me about the role that you've seen that conventional medicine is actually playing in the treatment of fatigue, or are they doing a good, any kind of job at all at helping people to increase their energy levels? Because let's be honest, the majority of people, that's where they're going. Yeah. Well, 
let's just start with like a big picture paradigm of conventional medicine. So conventional medicine is almost entirely, and with some exceptions, like there's some areas where they do great work, let's say acute infections or emergency care and trauma. If you get stabbed or shot or in a car accident, or you lose a limb and you need a prosthetic, there, there's obviously areas where there's amazing stuff going on in conventional medicine. Right. We're number one in acute medicine, you know? Yes. Yeah. But in the context of most chronic disease, it's not only pathetically ineffective in most cases, but at a paradigm level, as far as the, the approach to it, it's almost always absurd and asinine. So fundamentally, conventional medicine is looking at sickness and sort of trying to study sickness as a path to health. And you don't get healthy by trying to undo sickness. You don't get healthy by studying the, biochem the abnormal biochemical pathways of obesity and diabetes and heart disease and neurological disease and then developing a drug that interrupts these abnormal pathways. Health is not created by taking a pill to interrupt the abnormal biochemical pathways associated with all these illnesses. It's created by a, an entirely different set of strategies that create optimal functioning of the system. So when you look at fatigue, what you have is a paradigm where they're trying to look at fatigue, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, stress-related exhaustion, clinical burnout, burnout syndrome. These conditions go by different names in the scientific literature. Those are some of the recognized syndromes that I just mentioned. What they do is they'll look at what are the physiological and biochemical abnormalities in these conditions and how can we identify what's causing these conditions? Well, the problem is almost all of those studies that where they've done that show no clear biochemical abnormalities. Some show, you know, more recently, there's, there's some that show, oh, there's elevated chronic inflammation or there's neuroinflammation in the brain, or there's signs of gut permeability. There's mitochondrial dysfunction. There's lots of things that have kind of been more speculatively identified, but there isn't any clear thing like you have in, let's say, diabetes or heart disease where it's like, oh, it's atherosclerosis. Oh, it's insulin resistance, right? Fatigue is way more nebulous, and there isn't any clear biochemical abnormality that we can nail down and say, Let, we, we have the drug to fix this particular abnormal biochemical pathway. So the reality of what they have to offer was actually it was a it was basically a, some evidence-based guidelines for physicians and how to practice with their fatigue patients. And uh, it was published in the journal American Family Physician. And here's what they said. If someone goes to the doctor with fatigue, they have the expectation that they're going to get a blood test and they're gonna, that blood test is just going to show what's wrong with them and how to fix it. Here's the reality, and these are the actual statistics published in this, this journal article. And what they said is, on those, those lab tests, there is a 95% probability that they will find nothing of use in people with fatigue. Nothing. Zero findings on that blood test that will give any direction on what is wrong with that person or how to fix it. And the 5% are things like anemia or hypothyroidism or diabetes and things like that. So 95% of the time you got nothing on that test. And then here are the four treatments that conventional medicine has to offer people with fatigue. They've got 
uh, a recommendation to do 30 minutes of walking and stretching per day. They've got a recommendation to do cognitive behavioral therapy. They've got antidepressants. Mm. And they've got stimulants as needed. Stimulants as needed. Yeah. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not misrepresenting it. That is literally what they say are their four standard evidence-based guidelines for how to treat people with fatigue. So what you're telling me is they got nothing for you. (laughs) Basically, yeah. That kind of says it all that what conventional medicine has to offer people with fatigue is, generally speaking, almost entirely unhelpful. Oh, got it. Okay. That, and that, that I knew. I think it's important for us to, to understand and hear, especially when it comes to literature, what's being offered and why patients are walking away from those doctor's visits, feeling confused, feeling un, like unheard, feeling very alone in that journey and not really moving along with the solution. Yeah. And actually, you, you just brought up a good point as well, which is there's a long history, especially with severe chronic fatigue syndrome of because, well, a couple of things, because like I said, most lab findings don't find anything notable. The doctors often presume that it's all in the patient's head. They're hypochondriacs. And so you have these people with very real, very debilitating, severe medical conditions that just because the doctor's particular lab tests, the things that they're measuring come back normal, They say, oh, this person's just lazy, or they're a hypochondriac, or it's psychogenic illness. The worst part about this, as as we were talking about the other day, is the vast majority of people with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia are women. And so there's this this history of especially male doctors presuming that their female patients are more likely to be hypochondriacs or to be hysterical, historically speaking, and those sorts of things. So you have those kinds of elements embedded into this story too. And that's also really unfortunate. How many, you know, I know you have a good sense of who you're serving. How many of your readers or how many people who have, have gone through the energy blueprint have been women? Like how many of them are women in general? I have a guess. I I think probably 70 or 75%. I was thinking 75%. Yeah. Yeah. I had a feeling. Okay, so I'm going to switch gears a little bit. We know now that conventional medicine doesn't have much for us, and that is so validating because so often we go, I remember when I went to my doctor for chronic fatigue, and we ran the labs, and and hormones were out of control, but that didn't really say anything about my fatigue, and what I was given was birth control and Xanax. I didn't get an antidepressant. I got an (laughs) anti-anxiety medication, and it's funny now, but it surely wasn't funny then. You just needed to calm down. That's what what you down. If my husband says that to me one more time, no. Uh, Okay. It can feel so disconcerting. I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is happening to not just me. This is happening to so many people every single time they go to the doctor's office and you just leave there, hopefully, hopefully not fulfilling those scripts, you know, like I did that day, but gosh, sometimes, you know, we have that blind faith in our doctors and so often people probably are, and it's not ever getting, you know, people tell me like, I went on this medication or I went on this, this thing and it never did anything. Or two months later, I felt like I was right back where I was at. And one of the diagnoses that we see a lot that we have talked about at great length is adrenal fatigue. And I want to have this conversation because when we stamp somebody with adrenal fatigue, one, it's completely inaccurate. Adrenal fatigue, as far as I'm concerned, I think you would agree is a myth. But then recommendations are made that are not supportive, especially if someone was put on steroids. So talk to me about adrenal fatigue and talk to me about why it's not a good representation of what's going on in the body. 
I'll first say that I was a believer in adrenal fatigue for many years. I mean, coming from a background in natural health and studying holistic nutrition and for many, many years from the time I was a teenager, of course, I gravitated towards the, the common paradigm within the natural health community, which on fatigue was adrenal fatigue. And I just, there was books written on it. There's hundreds, thousands of articles on adrenal fatigue. I just assumed, of course, if all these experts, all these people that I respected at that time were talking about adrenal fatigue, of course, it's real. Of course, it's based on really good science. Then I came to discover that within the conventional medical community, among MDs, among endocrinologists who are hormone experts, this idea of adrenal fatigue for people to connect the dots, the adrenals produce cortisol, which is a hormone. So this falls within the domain of endocrinologists. The endocrinologists don't believe in adrenal fatigue. And there's literally statements from public institutions or bodies of endocrinologists saying adrenal fatigue does not exist. And I was, you know, a hardcore believer in adrenal fatigue. And so I was actually kind of miffed at this whole thing, thinking, oh, these, you know, conventional MDs don't just don't understand that adrenal fatigue really is a real thing. And I had a vision that I was going to dig into the scientific literature and prove that adrenal fatigue was real and that the science supported it. And what I actually found kind of blew my mind because I spent several months digging into the literature. And what I actually found is that the literature doesn't support adrenal fatigue and that the conventional MDs are right about that subject. Now, I, I'm not saying that means conventional MDs knows, know what they're doing when it comes to fatigue, as I already explained, but on this particular issue on the existence of adrenal fatigue and whether that is the key factor driving most of this stress-related exhaustion and chronic fatigue, the science is very clear that it's, it's simply not. This was actually very uncomfortable for me to deal with at the time. I didn't want to accept this, and I kind of fought it, and I didn't know what to do with all this, these findings. And eventually, after kind of sitting on it for like a year, I basically just decided, you know what, I'm going to do the most comprehensive review of the scientific literature on this topic that's ever been done, and then I'm just going to communicate the objective facts of those findings not with any agenda to convince anybody of any particular thing. I'm just going to lay out, here's all the studies, here's what the studies say. And that's what I've done. And it's available publicly on my site. There's 79 studies that have been done over the span of the last 25 years since the 1990s by researchers all over the world that have looked specifically at the question of cortisol levels and adrenal function in relationship to various fatigue syndromes. So they've tested this in the context of stress-related exhaustion disorder, burnout syndrome, clinical burnout, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, other things like vital exhaustion by a bunch of different kinds of fatigue disorders. And the researchers have actually looked at this question very, very, very thoroughly as far as is poor adrenal function or adrenal exhaustion, burnout, or low cortisol levels the cause of these fatigue syndromes? And just to back up for a minute, in case anybody's unfamiliar with this idea of adrenal fatigue, basically it's the idea that chronic stress over time wears out your adrenals, which produce this stress hormone called cortisol. And that cortisol does important things like helps manage blood sugar and affects inflammation in the body and a few other roles. But it's important in the stress response. So if you have chronic stress over time, this wears out the adrenals and then you don't get enough cortisol and then the low cortisol causes low energy levels and insomnia and sugar and salt cravings and a bunch of other symptoms that are said to be associated with this adrenal fatigue. 
So I looked at all this literature and basically here's how it breaks down. There's 59 of the 79 studies are individual studies. So basically the most common kind of study within all of those 59 is they take a group of people with stress-related exhaustion disorder or burnout syndrome and measure their cortisol and then they compare it to a group of age-matched, gender-matched, healthy people without stress-related exhaustion and measure their cortisol and see if there's any difference. Okay, and there's lots of, I mean, the dozens of these kinds of studies, which is a very good way of assessing this relationship. And if the theory of adrenal fatigue is real, it should very clearly show up in the results of these tests where you'd expect the people with the fatigue syndromes to have significantly lower cortisol levels. The actual results are 15 of the 59 studies support slightly lower cortisol levels in the morning specifically, but not actually any real difference in overall 24-hour output of cortisol. Okay, So if you measure total output over the course of 24 hours, it's still normal, but slightly lower in the morning. Another 11 of the 59 studies show the opposite finding, slightly higher cortisol levels in the morning. And then 33 of 59 studies show no discernible difference whatsoever in cortisol levels between people with full-blown fatigue conditions and normal, healthy people. And that's just a, a straightforward communication of the actual findings from these studies. So you've got a few that find a little low, a few that find a little high, they kind of cancel each other out, and then the vast majority finds no discernible difference. But there is absolutely, in this whole body of evidence, there's no there's no real indication of any burnout of the adrenal glands or any actual inability to produce enough cortisol. Perfect. I love that. Yeah. I, I feel like we're, we're shooting down these little messengers when they're not act. They're just doing their job. They're just trying to do the work that the brain tells them to do. I know what we're not saying is that these symptoms aren't, they're, they're real. We know the symptoms are real. We just can't blame it on the adrenals. We got to blame it on something else. That's a really good point that I, I want to emphasize too, that a lot of people who are very attached, they, they've kind of identified with, I have adrenal fatigue. They hear me say adrenal fatigue isn't real. And it's like, well, no, I, I had low cortisol levels and I do have adrenal fatigue and that is the cause of my symptoms. Well, what, what I'm saying is, you do absolutely have those symptoms. I'm, I'm not taking that away from you. I'm just saying, let's be careful about what specific physiological mechanisms we attribute those symptoms to. Absolutely. Well, and here's the thing about cortisol, and you know this as well as I do, that when we're measuring cortisol in saliva or, or with blood, we're only looking at what's available, what's free. And we, we don't get to see the whole picture. Cortisol, all the, there's so many different pathways and, and there's so many different ways it's being metabolized. And, and so it's very rarely that we're going to actually see that in, in blood or in saliva. It's so interesting that you talk about, I always think about that early start of the morning with the cortisol kind of activation that we have in the morning and how maybe when people are exhausted, I don't know if that's having a role at that very beginning of the day because it's such a big output. But I feel like those kind of tests really don't give us a lot of information. Yeah. Well, so in those studies that I mentioned, there are a lot of them that measure salivary cortisol. There's a number of them that measure blood cortisol and some of them that measure urinary cortisol metabolism. So they measured it actually in lots of different ways. And none of the ways of measuring it really give any indication that cortisol is causing these symptoms. Let me just phrase this another way. 
if you had a hundred people who all have severe debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome, like they're bedridden, they're so fatigued, their body's so pathologically disturbed that they can't function at all. And you had another hundred people who were perfectly healthy and you measured all of their cortisol levels and you gave it to a practitioner let's say a naturopath or something like that who believes in adrenal fatigue and is absolutely convinced adrenal fatigue is real. They, di they, they diagnose people with adrenal fatigue all the, their time and they're absolutely convinced it's the most real thing in the world and it's absurd that anyone would question it. Okay? If you give them those 200 cortisol measurements and say, can you tell me which of these 100 people have fatigue and which are healthy, normal people? They would have the same odds of guessing right as flipping a coin. The cortisol results would tell them almost nothing about the level of fatigue that those people are experiencing. And we know that people can have severe full-blown chronic fatigue or, or stress-related exhaustion and have slightly elevated cortisol. They can have slightly lower cortisol. They can have perfectly normal cortisol. The symptoms can be exactly the same despite very different amounts of cortisol. So that is not something that you can deal with if you're being intellectually honest and say, well, it's still the cortisol. It's like saying whether somebody has high blood sugar or low blood sugar or normal blood sugar, they've got diabetes any way you splice it. And actually within the adrenal fatigue theory, they've got these three phases, the acute phase where cortisol levels are high and then a compensatory phase where cortisol levels may be normal and then they're supposed to be lower in the third phase. So the kind of intellectual game that a lot of these people are playing is like, well, no matter what findings we get on your cortisol, whether it's high, normal, or low, any way you look at it, you've still got adrenal fatigue. And yet there's no other condition, medical condition, where that kind of diagnosis would be acceptable. And we can talk about if there's a definitive way to measure fatigue and hormone testing or not hormone testing, my gut tells me if someone's feeling darn right crappy, something isn't right. And the next step is really trying to figure out, well, first step is trying to figure out what's driving whatever the burnout is, whether it's lifestyle or I call them the clutch the pearls moments, you're constantly going into stress mode because you just don't manage stress so well, or whether it's because of a virus or whatever. And I want to get into, I don't know if we even have time to address what could be driving fatigue, but what I want to talk about is once you know in your gut that you've got it, what can we do about it? When we're feeling so crappy, what's taking the hit? Is it the cells? Is it the mitochondria? Is that why we feel so, so just like we can't even lift our head up at the end of the day? Yeah. Well, so I think fundamentally the symptom of fatigue is most easily and directly explained by mitochondrial shutdown. Mitochondria are the energy generators in our cells. Fatigue is low energy production. It really is just a very direct and easy jump to say, well, low energy production at the cellular level means you feel low energy. And that's exactly what's going on. And, and we know that when we have factors in our environment that cause mitochondrial shutdown, and there's, there's many of them that I'll list off, we know that directly causes the symptom of fatigue. So I'll give you one example. You get a cold or a flu. We know that one of the actions of a lot of microbial infections is to shut down the mitochondria. And there's a response that's this has been elucidated by a researcher named actually here in San Diego where we both live, Robert Navio, who runs a lab for mitochondrial medicine at the University of California, San Diego. 
he's written a seminal paper, I think one of the most important papers in the last 50 years in medicine, on the cell danger response, and specifically how mitochondria are the hub of our metabolism and control whether resources and energy are being directed into what he calls peacetime metabolism, which is energy production, or if the body is sensing any kind of threats or dangers in the environment where it shuts down energy production and shifts more towards wartime metabolism or cell defense mode. And when it's in that mode, now it's not concerned with pumping out lots of energy. It's concerned with directing the resources towards dealing with the threat that is present. So energy production shuts down. These are two sides of the same coin. So your energy levels can be thought of as basically a direct reflection of the degree of mitochondrial shutdown in response to what kind of signals are the mitochondria detecting as far as is it safe to be in peacetime metabolism and pumping out lots of energy or am I, do I need to defend against threats? And is this to preserve them, the little mitochondria? Is this, are they like saying to themselves in their own way, just like, hey, shut down because I want to make sure I survive this moment in my own way? It's actually, it's more about making the body as a whole survive. Survive, okay. okay so, so this part of the, I don't want to get too detailed in the biochemical pathways, but part of what happens at the cellular level is, let's say there's heavy metals that are present in that particular cell or that group of cells. Well, those mitochondria shut down energy production and they will actually try and seal off the cell. So the cell membranes will actually become less permeable. They'll try and seal themselves off. If the damage that's being caused by those heavy metals or the microbial infection is severe enough, those cells will actually self-destruct, something called apoptosis, and the mitochondria will self-destruct. What happens when they do that is some of these compounds that are supposed to be inside of the cell, purinergic compounds, so like ATP, which is cellular energy, it's supposed to stay stuck inside your cells. But one, once you have this kind of dangers present and you, you're starting to get the apoptosis, the programmed cell death happening, now you get some of this ATP and ADP and some of these other compounds, cellular energy compounds, leaking outside of the cell into the bloodstream where they circulate and, and are acting as a signaling molecule to communicate to the other cells of the body that there is a danger present and that they need to shut down energy production and direct more resources towards cellular defense, whether that's activating inflammation or activating the immune system. And part of this is to conserve energy by creating the symptom of fatigue. So in other words, you are more likely to get over a cold faster if you rest and lay in bed versus if you go out and work hard and go for lots you of run. You take a bunch of Sudafed yeah. and you try to pound through your day despite you being sick. Exactly. That's my MO back in the yeah. day. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So in this context, we can understand that fatigue is actually an intelligent symptom. It's, it's adaptive. It's part of our body's healing response. Now, it, it becomes pathological if it's chronic, but it's important to understand fatigue as your body being stuck in a mode where it feels not safe enough to be in peacetime metabolism and energy production mode, and it's stuck in too much of self-defense mode. So the key factors that are going to cause this, any type of psychological or emotional stressor, and there's actually a field that's emerged called mitochondrial psychobiology, where researchers are showing directly the link between what goes on in the mind, psychological stress, 
directly impacting on the mitochondria literally within seconds or minutes. And this doesn't have anything with the chemical messenger called cortisol sending a little message, or is it at all involved ever? Is it more neurotransmitters versus hormones kind of sending that little signal, like things just hit the fan? The, the right way to understand it is this, the body's stress response involves dozens of uh, hormones and neurotransmitters yeah. and biochemical pathways. Mm. And cortisol is just one of them. One of them. Yep. Cortisol isn't regulating the whole network and controlling. It is not running the full show. (laughs) It's just one thing that's going on. And it just happens to be that for whatever reason, people several decades ago became myopically focused on cortisol and adrenal function. What's interesting how research happens that way. Like I've read a lot of the background on this as well. And, you know, as researchers are trying to uncover this adrenal thing, adrenal fatigue, cortisol, they just kept looking, you know, they were looking at the adrenals and they saw changes over time. And then they just ran with these theories that became the thing that we know today. Yeah, you know? exactly. And the theory is very old, actually. It started with Hans Selye back in like the 1930s to 50s. And that's really where like the, the basic three models of this stress response kind of came from. The theory of adrenal fatigue is almost like a hundred years old and really has been disproven at this point. We know it's just not true. We have psychological, emotional stressors. We have nutritional factors. We know that inflammation and immune activation, which we can get inflammation directly from the foods we eat. If we eat lots of processed junk. Tell them, tell them, Ari, tell them. (laughs) Yeah, so that inflammation we know directly shuts down mitochondrial energy production. Inflammation and peacetime metabolism are incompatible with one another. The more you activate inflammation, the more you shut down peacetime metabolism. So circadian rhythm and sleep, huge factor. Toxins, man-made toxins or toxicants in the environment, another huge factor. Gut health, another huge factor. The way we operate our brains, another huge factor. Hormesis, which is a transient metabolic stressor, so exercise being one, but also things like fasting, cold exposure, heat exposure, many different kinds of phytochemicals. There's a few other types of hormesis as well are critical to actually stimulate our mitochondria and keep oh, them big those and are strong. good stressors. Yeah. Good stressors, yes, that keep our mitochondria big, strong, and healthy, which is another critical part of this equation because ultimately how big and strong and healthy your mitochondria are determines what I call your resilience threshold, which is basically how much of these other kinds of stressors, toxins, poor diet, sleep deprivation, psychological stress, how much of those things the body and the cells can tolerate and handle and adapt to before they become overloaded and get shifted out of peacetime metabolism into the cell danger response. So this is kind of the the big picture, like the meta frame of, of what causes fatigue. It's all of these different kinds of lifestyle and environmental factors that ultimately coalesce. Uh, There's certainly lots of different biochemical pathways, but ultimately coalesce at the mitochondrial level in mitochondrial shutdown, which causes the symptom of fatigue. Mm. I love it. I see the picture. You do such a great job at explaining that. And the little thing that you said was that we can actually enable our mitochondria to be stronger and more resilient to create that resilience on the back end. How can we be proactive? Now, mind you, I know that people are sitting here and thinking, I need reactivity. Like I need to figure out how to fix these guys, not even how to be proactive. But 
Can we speak to even proactivity? Like how can we set ourselves up for success? So if we do get hit, because let's be honest, all right, we live in this crazy world. Things are going to happen. Text messages are flying here and there. You know, you're going to just hit a wall out of nowhere. You're going to get sick like you did when you were in your 20s, right? And so how do we prepare for that? And then this is just a lot to ask you in one little episode. I'll have you come back. But if I am on the ground crawling like I once was before, how do I even get myself back up? Yeah. I like to start with circadian rhythm. I think that's the best place to start because we live in a, in a world that is, is fundamentally at odds with our circadian rhythm, which is this biological clock that's built into our brain that regulates dozens of different neurotransmitters and hormones and biochemical pathways that impact on sleep and wake cycles, the quality and depth of your sleep, your brain function, your mood, your energy levels, and even beyond that, things like your appetite and, and much, much more. Just to name a couple things, and then I want to, I'll name a couple practical strategies, and then I want to connect the dots with mitochondria. So one simple strategy, free, simple thing that is so neglected is within the first half an hour of the day, get outdoors and get bright light in your face. So simple, okay? Turns out actually, by the way, going back to cortisol, circadian rhythm disruption is actually the primary cause of if somebody had low morning cortisol level measurements, it's not from adrenal fatigue and your adrenals still have the capacity to produce enough cortisol. It's likely just circadian rhythm disruption. I would estimate probably at least in 90% of cases, if not more. And you're talking about the cortisol activation process that happens in that first besides that, like it takes us from awake to alert, but without sunlight or without good light, we may not have that response. Let me connect it even in a more broadly. Cortisol has its own circadian rhythm. It's secreted on what's called a diurnal curve, which means, as you said, we have this morning, what's called a cortisol awakening response. We have a big rise in cortisol in the first few hours of the day, and then it goes down in the afternoon and then stays low during the night, and then the next morning goes up again. That is regulated by the circadian clock in the brain. So it's not just a coincidence that it happens like according to this 24-hour rhythm. It's regulated by the circadian clock. So if you have a dysfunctional circadian clock and you don't have good circadian rhythm habits, as far as light exposure habits, when most people don't, well, then it's very likely that you're going to have an abnormal circadian rhythm of your diurnal curve of cortisol. And the way that manifests most of the time is a lowered morning rise in cortisol and often elevated evening cortisol levels. And this is called a flattened diurnal curve of cortisol. So instead of like a big peak and a deep valley, it becomes a smaller peak and a smaller valley. So the whole curve gets a little blunted. And yeah, that can be a contributing factor to energy problems to mood problems, but there's so much more going on. I mean, there's, there's also all these neurotransmitters and other hormones and other biochemical pathways that are also going on. So I still don't want to reduce it down to cortisol, no, but I just wanted to. Not. Well, I was just thinking about how this, the, you know, all of this is being regulated in the brain and in our circadian cycle that if that's thrown off, it's just one of the many hormone systems that is being thrown off throughout. Yeah, the and evening. exactly. And let me, let me speak to that. So one of the other aspects of this is a compound called NAD+, which is being talked about now a lot of, there's a lot of talk over the supplement nicotinamide riboside or nicotinamide mononucleotide. And are the, is, is this the next big anti-aging thing? Well, it turns out that your circadian rhythm also directly impacts on the NAD plus levels in your cells. It's not just these supplements that do it. 
your lifestyle habits also do it. And specifically your circadian rhythm and sleep habits do it in a very powerful way. They literally regulate the amount of NAD plus that's present in the mitochondria, which is a regulator of mitochondrial energy production. But there's more to this story. So one of the other things that happens is during sleep, we also do a process called autophagy and mitophagy, which is repair of damaged cell parts and mitochondrial parts. Well, if you don't have a strong circadian rhythm and very deep, efficient sleep, you don't do that repair of your mitochondria each night as well and as efficiently. So that's another thing. It's like you, you slowly accumulate more damaged and dysfunctional mitochondria over time. Another aspect, this is a cool one that most people don't know, is melatonin. So melatonin is, again, controlled by the circadian clock and these inputs in particular of light exposure and darkness. Most people know melatonin as a sleep hormone, but here's what they don't know. Melatonin is the most potent protector of your mitochondria in existence. It's the most powerful antioxidant, mitochondrial antioxidant known to man. And it's designed to get into your mitochondria each night while you sleep and protect them from damage and rebuild intracellular, intramitochondrial stores of the internal antioxidant defense system, things like glutathione and catalase and superoxide dismutase, these things that also protect your mitochondria from damage. So consider this, when you live in a world with too much artificial light exposure at night, you cut your melatonin secretion by about half. So what happens if over the course of not just a day, but months and years and decades of your life, you chronically underproduce the amount of this most potent protector of your mitochondria by about half for decades? Well, ultimately, you make your mitochondria really susceptible to damage. You fragilize them, so they accumulate a lot more damage over time. So you can see just, and there's more we could talk about here, but these are just a few ways uh, that the circadian rhythm habits, these simple things like light exposure first thing in the morning, cutting out artificial light exposure in the evenings for an hour or two before bed, wearing blue-green blockers, and getting off the electronics, changing the lighting in your home environment, these simple things that no one would think would have such a big difference can directly impact on your hormones and your mitochondria in a very, very powerful way. You have given us so much food for thought. We don't have too much time now, but that would be, I mean, that makes so much sense. You know, in, in, in a short interim, just making sure that we are resetting our sleep cycle, which I bet a lot of people are like, hmm, you know, because I know we we tend to just want to do the thing we're doing, you know, watch the one more Netflix show or look at Instagram before going to bed or even have a TV in our room. And, you know, you walk in away from this and like, gosh, that feels so simple, yet it's so profound in terms of what we need. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people, especially the people with the TV in the room and that sort of thing, and they'll, they'll you'll hear people say, well, you know, I watch TV right before bed and I don't do this blue blocker stuff. And, you know, I have normal fluorescent LED lights in my house and I sleep just fine. What you don't realize is, okay, you, you can still fall asleep, but we know from the research that the, what's, what's called sleep efficiency, which is the depth and quality of your sleep per hour that you're sleep, asleep is drastically lowered by this exposure to artificial lights. We also know, as I just said, that it absolutely does suppress levels 
of melatonin, which is this powerful protector of your mitochondria. So yeah, you can still fall asleep and stay asleep and you may even still sleep eight hours, but you're not doing autophagy and mitophagy as well. You're not producing enough melatonin and every other aspect that, that NAD plus the quality and depth of your sleep and the brain rejuvenation, which we didn't even talk about those mechanisms, but all these different cellular regeneration and rejuvenation mechanisms don't happen as deeply and as efficiently when you have that light exposure, when you have poor circadian rhythm habits. Hmm. Thank you so much, Ari. Where can we get more of this? Because I know that there are a lot of other ways to support a mitochondria that we're not going to have time for today. Where else can we plug in to learn more? Yeah. One, you've got a podcast, which I love, but that's not the only place. My brand is called The Energy Blueprint, and I have a podcast, as you mentioned. What we'll do, I think the best thing is let's set up a link for your people. We'll put it at theenergyblueprint.com forward slash Marisa. And I'll have a free masterclass that people can sign up for, which is a, a four video sequence that takes people way in depth and gives a ton of practical strategies on how to increase your energy levels in a massive way. And it's delivered over the course of about a week. So I'll have that set up for your audience. Again, it's theenergyblueprint.com forward slash Marisa. Perfect. And we will have the notes all in the show notes. We'll have it on the website. We'll have it everywhere. You guys, this masterclass is amazing. I wasn't sure if Ari was going to give us the masterclass and he did. Thank you. Cause I was like, so what you got for us? <laughs> Thank you so much, Ari. I'm so grateful that we have such a good friendship. I'm grateful to have you on the show and you just brought so much insight. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It's pretty obvious that Ari and I share the same philosophy on energy production in the body. And we both agree that we need to look at energy production in a new light if we are gonna get that energy back in a sustainable way. Energy is everything. And what's driving energy is also driving our cellular function. They're two and two coinciding. And that's why energy happens to be oftentimes one of the biggest symptoms for so many conditions out there. And usually we begin to feel energy depleted into our 30s, 40s, and beyond. But luckily, we are learning very advanced techniques for how to improve our cellular function, how to improve our detoxification processes, and ensure that our body is working like a fine-tuned machine, which is what we all deserve. Now, I would love for you to plug into more. If energy is an issue for you, if you're feeling depleted, even when you wake up in the morning or especially in the middle of the afternoon, Ari's Masterclass, which is completely free, is powerful. It steps you into what is possible and how to heal your cellular function, your mitochondrial function. Now, I'm going to have the link in the show notes for episode 125, or you can go to my website at drmarisa.com slash podcast and just look up episode 125 and you will find it there. Or you can just go to theenergyblueprint.com or use the link that Ari mentioned earlier in the show. I want to thank you so much for stopping by and listening into the Essentially You podcast once again. On the next episode, I am bringing on a dear friend, Dr. Tony Ewan, and he is going to be not only sharing his story, but also sharing non-invasive anti-aging tips for, well, every single one of us, right? And it so ties into this conversation today. So I'm excited to see you on the next episode. Until then, have an amazing week. Bye. Bye.